Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible study in the book of Revelation. Tonight is study number 10 of Revelation chapter 3. And we're continuing to look at verse 4. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And in our last study, we looked at the first part of this verse. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis. And we saw that by the use of the word few, that God is identifying these people in Sardis and and also uh, figuratively, uh, they represent all in the congregations that would be his elect. The few identify with the elect and a few names. And we saw also that the Bible refers to those whose names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life. And and God says uh, additionally, In Luke chapter 10, in verse 20, Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This is the cause of rejoicing. If you are a child of God, then you may rejoice as well as me or anyone uh, who is one of these elect people, one of the few, due to the fact that God has written our names in heaven. They are recorded in his infinite being, and he will never forget them, nor forsake them. They they are always we could say, on his mind. Uh, He uh, has long thought about them, and he has long known them. He knows each one who he has determined to save. And, And so we might rejoice. No, we don't have maybe the best of circumstances. Maybe there are many difficulties in our life physically, um, emotionally, politically, there, there's just no end of the possible things that might go wrong in this world and be an occasion of a trial or affliction or persecution of some sort. Yet God tells us to rejoice, that we might rejoice because he has recorded our names. He knows us, though the world forget us, though our own family turn away from us, and though friends separate us from their company, God has said that he will never leave nor forsake us, and he knows us intimately, very personally, and he knows our name, our given name, as well as if there uh, is a, a new name that he has granted us. And he knows all about us, and and so we may rejoice. Now, uh, just one other verse before we move on. In John chapter 10, I'll begin in verse 1. It says in John 10, verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. 
To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And isn't this a beautiful picture that the Lord is giving us in the Gospel of John of the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls his own sheep, not as though we're strangers, not as though he he knows little or nothing of us, but very personally, he calls us each by our name. And we hear his voice, we hear that call because it is directed by Christ to us. It is a very specific call. Now, the call goes out generally to all the world uh, to respond to the gospel, and many are called, but few are chosen. Few are called by name because their names are written in heaven. They have been written down in that figure that the Lord uses in the Lamb's Book of Life, and God is calling us and we hear that voice, and we do respond to the call as a result that he has already laid our sins upon the Lord from the foundation of the world. He has predestinated, predetermined who he would save. He he has paid for all the sins of these elect. And, and so when the time came, as each one was born into the world, God made sure they heard his word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And he used his word to create a new heart within them, saving them and guaranteeing their eternal future and that they would receive eternal life. Well, let's turn back to Revelation chapter three. And in our verse, verse four, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. Now, uh, here uh, we we find that the Lord is using language concerning the few names, and, and both the word few and names relates to the elect. He's telling us this is the case of those that I have truly saved. And yes, there were truly saved people that uh, were a part of the church age. That's where God was in the midst. He was in the midst of the churches and congregations for almost 2,000 years. He dwelt in the churches. He used the churches to accomplish his purpose. And he also saved some of those in the churches. Now, we could gather since God speaks of a few names in Sardis, he's letting us know that uh, in the churches there was um, not as many as we might originally think or uh, when we first hear about such a long period of time for the church age that uh, certainly untold numbers were saved. And no, we, we really shouldn't think that. Actually, God indicates elsewhere in the Bible, especially in Isaiah chapter 9, that the church age did accomplish the Lord's purpose. He did save the first fruits and all that he intended to save from 
the nations of the world in which the gospel reached. He did save, and so it was not a failure at all by uh, the will of God, but it was not an era or a period in which tremendous numbers of individuals became saved. The Lord's plan was to wait until the time of the end, and then he would allow the world's population to multiply and increase at an incredible rate. And it's true that now we have about 7 billion people on the earth, and the number of people living on the earth now uh, would would be similar to the number of people that have ever lived throughout the, the previous period of Earth's history. And so God multiplied those numbers of people at the end of the world, and he held in reserve the time of saving a great multitude, tens upon tens upon tens of millions of people at that time of the end during the Great Tribulation, a short little season of about 17 years. And the Lord had his reasons for doing this. He he has established a principle in the Bible that uh, greater is the end of a thing than the beginning of it. And so he saved the best for last as the best wine was held in reserve by the working of Christ as he turned the water into wine at the wedding feast. And and so the Lord did the same thing with his gospel. He saved the vast majority of individuals to be saved, those elect people whose names, again, were written in the Lamb's Book of Life for the time of the end that we are now in. All right, once again, Revelation 3, 4 says, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now let's look at um, white garments or white raiment, as it says here in Revelation 3. Look at the next verse in verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Again, we we read of someone's name uh, who is in white in the book of life. and And that name will not be blotted out, meaning they will live. They will not die. And also in verse 18 of Revelation 3, we find the word white. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Now, we we really should know by now how God has written the Bible. He writes uh, in a mystery. He hides truth. He has written the Bible basically as one huge parable. And so throughout the Bible, we must look for the deeper spiritual meaning. And when God speaks of white raiment, as it says here in Revelation 3:18, that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. 
It is all a figure. It's a type and a figure. God uses nakedness in the Bible to picture our sins that are exposed. They're naked and open unto God's sight. Just as in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, what's the first thing that they noticed? Well, let, let's go back there and see. In, in Genesis chapter 3, we find that Adam and Eve have sinned and in verse 6, and then notice in verse 7, and the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The very first thing that Adam and Eve noticed after sinning against God and breaking his law not to eat of the fruit of that one forbidden tree is that they were physically naked. And and so God already has established um, a spiritual principle that physical nakedness in the Bible represents spiritual nakedness or sins that are open to God's sight. And, and if our sin is open unto God's sight, then we are under his wrath and he will destroy us. That, that is for certain. And so Adam and Eve, they, they saw their physical nakedness and immediately following the fall, they tried to cover themselves with, with some fig leaves. And that's, uh, that's a, a good illustration of what mankind has tried to do all through the history of the world. Mankind has been involved in a desperate attempt to cover their sin before God. But the problem is that they've tried to do this through their own effort and their own works. And, and so they've developed religions. And in these religions, they, they attempt to cover over their sins. The religions tell them things to do in order to get right with God. In the days of idols, when idols were numerous in, in the earth, they, they would offer sacrifice for their sin. Uh, sometimes human sacrifice. Of course, God never uh, asked for that thing that came out of man's corrupt mind. But mankind is always attempting to cover his sin through religion, through philosophy, through uh, the attempt of the secular modern man, uh, he covers his sin by removing it altogether by doing away with God. If there is no God, well, then there's no law of God. And if there's no law of God, there's no transgressing that law. And ergo, there is no judgment of God and he has covered his sin. And no matter what man tries to do, no matter how he tries to do it, in whatever deceitful way he he attempts to take away his sin and to cover it over and and to please God or to remove God, he is never able to accomplish it. The sin is always there and deep down uh, he knows this. He, he's never able to remove that conscience that God has placed within him, which convicts him 
of wrongdoing and uh, reveals to him that that there is a God. He knows there is a God. He knows that this God is somehow displeased with him and he's never able to repair that. It's only through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what Christ did through his faith and taking the sins of certain individuals, the whole company of the elect upon himself from the foundation of the world. And this tremendous number of iniquities was laid upon him and he paid the penalty that the law requires and demands by dying for all of these sins that these sinners have committed and he satisfied the demands of the law in full, in perfection, and once and for all, all the law's demands against all of those particular individuals, those elect, are satisfied through the work of Christ in paying for them by the giving up of his own life and and dying for their sake. And this has accomplished something that a, a individual could never accomplish by himself, no matter how hard and long he tried, and that is to cover over his sin. Now, for these elect people, their sin is removed. It is gone. It is not counted against them. God instead views them as perfectly sinless and holy. And he has even given them, as a result of this, a new resurrected soul that indeed is perfect and without sin in itself. Uh, even though sin resides still in their earthly body, in their members, yet God does not um, count it against them. He does not uh, reckon any of their transgressions that they still might commit after salvation against them because those sins too were paid for. Every sin they would ever commit in thought, word, and deed from time past of their life present and future was accounted for by Christ and this makes them holy, pure and perfect in the sight of God and this is why God uses the figure uh, of white raiment. The white denotes in the Bible purity and holiness and and so when a person becomes saved and a child of God they're clothed with right, with, excuse me, well, that too, they're clothed with uh, the righteousness of Christ, and they're clothed in white, white garments. It says in Revelation 7 of the great multitude that that God saved during that season, short season of great tribulation, it says in verse 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and and so on. So, and well, the question is asked in verse thirteen, and one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, 
thou knowest? And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how our robes, our garments are made white. That's how we're spotless and and pure in the sight of God. It's through the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb, which the Bible tells us was slain from the foundation of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist proclaimed, that taketh away the sin of the world, the sin of those elect which are in the world, the only Savior, the only cleanser of sins, the only one able to wash away such filthy iniquity and and such um, ugliness from the souls of individuals. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who washes his people with with a whiteness that that just cannot be matched in this world because they are cleansed with such a spiritual cleansing that that there is nothing that can really describe it it is a perfect purity it, it says in revelation 19 and again this is describing the people of god who here are spoken of as the bride of christ it says in verse 6 of revelation 19, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. There's that great multitude again. And as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Can can we see the beautiful picture of the marriage relationship here of the bridegroom, Jesus, and his bride, millions upon millions of desperately wicked sinners just like anybody else, but cleansed and washed and made white because it was granted them. That is the mercy of God, the grace of God, the faith of Christ was granted them unlike others. Otherwise, they're they're just the same as anyone else. But God had special mercy for them, which he did not bestow on the rest of mankind. And as a part of the giving of this grace and this special mercy to these certain extremely blessed individuals, God has cleansed them by his own blood and and provided their marriage garment. He has made the the garment that the bride is attired in the white and clean and good garment, which is the fine linen, the righteousness of the saints, the righteousness of Christ himself. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, these are some verses we really all should be very familiar with, unless we we think we're something more uh, than anyone else. And of course, we're not. 
We're, we're no better than any other person in this world. God says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And that that's basically a list of things we read about in our daily newspaper. The, these things are everywhere present today. And that's because this is the nature of man. Well, then, after giving this awful list of iniquity, God says in verse 11 of the same chapter, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You see, we also were deceived and fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and effeminate and abusers with mankind and thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers and extortioners and many other very uh, much of the same things that are not listed here. We have done wickedly like any other. We are just as guilty, just as deserving of eternal destruction we have rebelled against God. We have been filthy in our deeds. And and we have committed uh, just so many transgressions against the law of God that God certainly could justly have destroyed us as well as everyone else. But he did not because he determined and he only made this determination according to the good pleasure of his will, that he would save certain ones for himself. And and he did save them and did wash them and put his spirit within. And this is what God says in Ezekiel chapter 36 in verse 29. I will also save you from all your uncleannesses and I will call for the corn and will increase it, and lay no famine upon you. And then he says in verse 31, Then shall ye remember your own evil ways, and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight, for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord Jehovah. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord Jehovah, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste shall be builded. And now God has cleansed all of the elect from all of their iniquity. He has washed the whole land pure and clean, and and now they are ready. The bride has been made ready for the marriage. And we are living in the time of the marriage supper of the Lord that Revelation 19 describes. And what can we say? Yes, we see the evil. We see the wickedness and the multiplication of sin all around us like never before in this world. But 
may we not forget that so were we such uh, were we, we did likewise, we have sinned and offended and transgressed, and God forgave us and forbore us in a long-suffering and patient way until that time of forgiving and granting us his salvation. So may we be patient and not dare point any finger at anyone else and condemn any other individual as if we were somehow better we're no better at all. It's only by the grace of God that we're able to stand in the day of judgment. 